invite you to open to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to pick things up. Uh, verse 18b, about halfway through verse 18, right where we ended things last week. I have been blessed over the course of my life and studies with having uh, quite a few really awesome teachers. And I want to begin this morning by sharing with you about my high school math teacher. Her name was Mrs. Epp, Marge Epp. And she, she was a woman who, who, who loved math. Like, she loved math in a way that was beyond my ability to comprehend. She, she got excited about math. Math made her smile. Math, not only just math, but, but teaching others uh, about math. I mean, she got excited to help students get it. And I was one of those students she had to help a lot to get it. I, I didn't get it. I, I asked a lot of questions. But so many times when I'd ask a question and I'd ask a question, she would explain and explain and explain. And when the penny dropped, when suddenly I would get it or someone else would get it, she would be giddy with excitement. She would stand at the board giggling. She loved math and she loved helping other people get math, understand math, learn math. It was her passion. She probably went home and did math for fun. <laughs> this morning, we in this text, find an open window into Paul's heart. We will see Paul's deep, deep love, his, his single-minded passion for Jesus. A love for Jesus that really shapes everything. It shapes his life, and it shapes how he views death. We will see we will recognize here Paul's single-minded affection for Christ and its transformation, his, its transformative power in his life. Now you'll recall if you've been with us that Paul here in the letter to the Philippians is writing to a church, a, a, a Roman uh, a church in the Roman city of Philippi, a church he planted about a dozen years earlier. Uh, this church is experiencing suffering. There's some external opposition that, that is bringing suffering into their lives, but, but also they are experiencing internal strife. There is some conflict within the body. Paul himself writes this in the midst of difficulties. Paul writes from, uh, from prison. He is awaiting trial before Caesar, uh, the emperor of Rome. And, and despite this reality, in the text we looked at last week, Paul uh, we discovered Paul was filled with joy. Not joy because he was in prison, but joy because despite the fact that he was in prison, in fact, through the fact that he was in prison, God was advancing the gospel. Not in the way Paul had anticipated, not in the way that Paul necessarily wanted, but Paul recognized that through him being chained to Roman soldier after Roman soldier after Roman soldier for now about two years, Paul has had the opportunity to proclaim the hope that he has in Christ with virtually the whole Praetorium Guard. And not only with them, but other members of Caesar's household. That the gospel is advancing despite the fact that he's in jail. And he's filled with joy. But beyond that, his imprisonment has also filled the other believers in the city of Rome, where he's writing from, with a, a newfound boldness. And they too are proclaiming the hope that is found in Jesus. And so, despite his Difficult circumstances, the gospel is advancing, and so Paul is filled with joy. This morning, we pick things up 
uh, partway through verse 18, a verse that is, really serves transitionally between what Paul has just been talking about, his joy at the advance of the gospel, into the text that we're going to look at this morning. And you'll notice a shift. In last week's text, Paul was talking about what, what was happening, what had been happening into the past up to that present moment. In the text we look at today, Paul will shift his focus from what has happened or is happening to what will soon happen. He shifts his focus to the future. Listen as I read uh, verse 18b through to 26. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. I want to ask six questions with you today as we walk through and unpack this uh, passage of Scripture. First, what does Paul face Second, what does Paul know? Third, what does Paul need? Fourth, what does Paul feel? Fifth, what does Paul expect? And sixth, what does he model? What does he face? What does he know? What does he need? What does he feel? What does he expect? What does he model? Paul's situation as we move into this passage remains the same as it was last week. He was in chains. He's been chained to a Roman soldier in four-hour shifts for the last two years of his life. He's under arrest, awaiting trial before Caesar. Now, as will become clear in our text, Paul does expect that he will be uh, released. But make no mistake, Paul does not know that with anything resembling certainty. Uh, Look ahead with me at verse 20 again. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. Paul does not know with certainty what the future holds. It would seem that he is anticipating that soon this long-awaited day of trial before Caesar will come, but he does not know how that trial will go. He does not know how it will end. He does not know whether he will gain his freedom or receive the death penalty. Paul does not know what comes next. His future hangs in the balance. That's what Paul faces as he writes these words. Second, what does Paul know? Even in the face of this uncertainty with regards to his trial and the outcome, there is something about which Paul is absolutely certain. Listen again as I read the opening verses of our passage. And remember, this comes right out of verse 18, the end of what we looked at last week. Remember, he talked about how 
Uh, the believers in Rome were preaching the gospel, some out of wrong motives, some were trying to stir up trouble for him, but he rejoiced regardless. I'm going to read from the beginning of verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So last week in the text we looked at, Paul rejoiced because God was working through him being in chains. This, and God was working despite the fact that some in the church, some believers actually had ungodly motives or trying to stir up trouble for him. Nonetheless, he rejoiced because the gospel was advancing. Now in this passage, with his trial imminent, his trial coming, not knowing for certain how things would unfold, Paul still rejoices. Why? Why? Well, we're given an answer in verse 19. He says, because he knows that what has happened to him will turn out for his deliverance. Now, it's very important that we determine, that we understand what does he mean when he speaks here of his deliverance. And I want to contend right off the top that he is not speaking about his deliverance from prison, his release from captivity. That's not where he's going here. There's a number of things I want to draw your attention. First, Paul doesn't say that everything will turn out okay despite, in spite of the problems. Rather, he says, his adversity, what has happened to me, will result in his deliverance. The end result of what he is going through will be his deliverance. Not that he will be delivered from what he's been going through. However things unfold, the result, the end, will be his deliverance. And he's saying that knowing that death is a real possibility for himself. Second, we do well to understand that that Paul was steep in the Old Testament Scriptures. And so even where Paul is not quoting directly from those Old Testament Scriptures, he is so saturated with them that even as he talks, there are times where the, his, his language comes out of Old Testament texts. And biblical scholars recognize here that Paul's language echoes so closely uh, Job chapter 13. Uh, Job, of course, in the Old Testament figure who faces great, great suffering in his life and his would-be comforters, three friends, try and comfort him. And, and here in chapter 13, Job responds to what they're saying. They're saying, hey, the suffering you're experiencing is a result of sin. Things are not right between you and God. And Job says this, though he, that is God, may, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. For no godless person would dare come before him. In the context of the book of Job, Job is speaking of his confidence that God will deliver him even as he suffers. That God will vindicate him. That God will save him and prove his friends, his comforters, wrong in what they are saying of him. He's speaking of, of God's redemption, of God setting things right. And third, the word translated here as deliverance is the same word translated elsewhere as salvation. What has happened, so we could read this, what has happened to me will turn out for my salvation. What Paul has in mind here as he speaks of his confidence that he will experience deliverance is of God's eschatological deliverance, of salvation, God's salvation that comes at the end of history. The final realization of God's saving work through Jesus. If Paul lives, 
He lives as one who is redeemed, as one who is saved. Already, he is redeemed. And if he dies, his salvation will be complete because he is in Christ and he will be with Christ. Paul knows that he will receive salvation, the the end goal of his faith. This is the deliverance of which Paul speaks, of which he is certain. God's salvation, no matter what happens, is already his, whether he lives or whether he dies. Question three, what does Paul need? Knowing that he will soon stand before Caesar, knowing that his life from a human perspective hangs in the balance, Paul is in need of something, and we need to be attentive as we read this text so that we don't miss it. He needs courage, but, but to that end, he needs the prayers of the Philippians, and he needs the supply, the filling, the provision of God's Spirit. Look with me. I'm going to read verses 19 and 20 again. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance, my salvation. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's desire, his passion is for Jesus. He loves Jesus, and his desire is to exalt Jesus, whether in life or in death. He wants Christ to be lifted high. He wants Christ to be glorified. His desire is that he would have sufficient courage now as he stands before Caesar, that he would not have no, uh, in no way be ashamed. That's what our text says. Now, when we hear that word ashamed or we think of the word shame, we typically tend to think of subjective feelings of guilt that we all know when we've done wrong. But, but that's not what's meant here. Here's how Gordon, New Testament scholar Gordon Fee uh, puts it. He says, in biblical Greek, by way of the Old Testament, this word normally carries the sense of disgrace that one will experience from failing to trust God. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying he... he He needs sufficient courage, and he wants to make sure that his faith, his trust in God, his confidence in God will not waver. As he goes before the emperor, as he stands trial for his life, he wants to magnify Jesus. He wants to exalt Jesus, and and he desires to have sufficient courage for that, and that that his trust and confidence in God would not uh, waver. And so, to that end, he says, he needs the prayers of his Philippian brothers and sisters. He says, I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit, that is, he he wants the Philippians to pray for him, to pray that God would supply him with an infilling of the Spirit of God as as he goes into what lies ahead. Paul understands something that we need to grasp. Paul understands that his perseverance in the faith, that his perseverance under pressure is not this just this automatic thing, nor is it something that he somehow achieves autonomously by himself, by his own efforts, independent of others. In fact, what he says here acknowledges his need for Christian brothers and sisters, for their prayers that God would supply the Spirit in a greater measure. God works. We need to hear this. God works in my life and in your life through the prayers of our brothers and sisters. We in the West, we have such a mindset of independence. I will do my thing in my way. No one's going to tell me what to do. And we, we take that into our life with Christ and think of, this is about just me and Jesus. 
Yes, there is a deeply personal element to our relationship with Christ, but we are in community. We need one another. Paul here acknowledges that he needs the prayers of God's people to pray that God would fill him with the Spirit. They pray for the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Every one of us who is in Christ is indwelt by the Spirit of God. Scriptures are clear that if we are in Christ... The Spirit of God, the Spirit of the living God takes up residence within us, and the Spirit is in us. That is true. But the Bible also makes it clear that there are times of special, a special filling of the Spirit, special empowerment of the Spirit. Frank Thielman writes this, all believers have the Spirit all the time, but they sometimes experience the Spirit's presence in greater power and abundance than at other times. As Paul is anticipating standing before Caesar, he Acknowledges his need for the church in Philippi to pray that God would fill him with the Spirit, with power and peace and confidence so that he would have sufficient courage and that his faith, his confidence, his trust in God would not waver so that he could exalt Christ boldly. It brings us to the fourth question. What does Paul feel? Verse 21 is a very well-known verse in Scripture and certainly in Philippians. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Through the passage we looked at last Sunday, Paul's primary concern was the advance of the gospel, the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. Uh, Up to this point in today's passage, Paul's primary concern is that Christ would be exalted, that when he stands before uh, Caesar, that he would faithfully, boldly proclaim, exalt Jesus. But now Paul turns from that, and he reflects personally on what lies ahead for him, on what may lie ahead for him. And and we might be somewhat surprised by what we see Paul feels and feels deeply. For to me, to live is Christ and to die, to die is gain. See, Paul's single-minded devotion to Christ, Paul's single-minded love for Christ has so radically and utterly shaped his whole life has shaped everything. It shapes how he lives and it shapes how he approaches death, how he sees death. See, if Paul is released at his trial, then he will continue to live for Christ. He will continue to serve Christ. He will continue to proclaim Christ and exalt Christ, to bring glory to Christ for the advance of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. But if he is executed, then he gets to be with Christ and his faith will be sight. The the very goal of his life will be reached. His race will be complete. See, for Paul, for Paul, death is not to be feared. It, it, It is but the entry into the very presence of Jesus whom he loves with his whole heart. With single minded devotion. Listen to what he writes in what is probably his very last letter, 2 Timothy. Essentially his last will and testament. It will be written probably about two years after the letter to the Philippians. He is once again in a prison in Rome, and now he knows that his end is coming. That he will not get out. He writes this, The Lord, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Paul knows definitively in that moment as he writes that that he faces death that soon the executioner's axe would fall 
And he speaks of the Lord will rescue me. The Lord won't rescue me from death. The Lord won't rescue me from execution. But he will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. What Paul is saying, what he believes at his very core, is that whether he is released or whether he's executed, either way he wins. In fact, beginning in verse 22, we hear him sharing about this very real tension that he feels. Listen to this. He says, if I am to go on living in the body, this means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I don't know what to choose. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Do you feel the tension that he feels? He, he, he knows that death is, means that he will be in the presence of Jesus, the one for whom the one to whom he loves and is devoted to, the one who gave himself up for him. And so Paul genuinely goes, I prefer death. Death is gain. It's better for me. It's to my advantage to die, to be executed, because then I get to be with Jesus. Gordon Fee writes this, the sense lies in Paul's understanding death as the ultimate gaining of his lifelong passion. This expresses neither a death wish, nor dissatisfaction with life, nor a desire to be done with troubles and trials. It is the forthright assessment of one whose future in terms of life in the flesh is somewhat uncertain, but whose ultimate future is both certain and to be desired. Paul desires to be with Christ because he is in Christ. Because he knows of his deliverance, his salvation, death has lost its sting, and the prospect of being with Christ fills Paul with a deep yearning. I'm reminded as I read this text of of Psalm Psalm 42, the opening verses, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. Paul's soul longs for Jesus. He yearns for that day when he will stand in his presence. When Jesus will wrap his nail-scarred hands around him and welcome him. Paul. Paul imagines the glory of that moment. And he's filled with a deep yearning and anticipation for that moment. And he says, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. What a remarkable thing for us to see in Paul. Could the same be said about us? Could the same be said for the church in the West? Do we have this same single-minded devotion and affection for Jesus that, that we can say with Paul with integrity, yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Again, Fee writes this, too often for us it is for me to live as Christ plus work or plus leisure or plus the accumulating of wealth 
or plus relationships. If truth were known, all too often the plus factors become our primary passion. He says, our joy regarding the gospel is altogether contingent on whether or not Christ is our primary singular passion. This is surely an infinitely greater option than the self-gratification which dominates the culture of North America. Do we desire Christ above all else? Do we yearn for the day when we will stand in Christ's presence and our faith will be made sight? Or are our lives captured by, dominated by lesser things? eyes are fixed on Christ. Paul's eyes are fixed on the glory that awaits. There are some who say that some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good, but that is in fact not true. C.S. Lewis powerfully writes this in Mere Christianity. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Do we share this single-minded passion for Jesus with Paul who can say, I desire to depart and be with Christ? That's what Paul feels. He feels this genuine tension. Fifth question, what does Paul expect? Though Paul would prefer death if it were his choice, it's not. What becomes clear at the beginning of verse 24 is that that is not what he expects to happen. Though he does not know with certainty, he doesn't expect that he is going to die now. We read this, verse 24, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. It would be for Paul advantageous to face execution and death and enter into the presence of Jesus, but it would be to the Philippians' advantage for him to live so that he can help them progress in the faith and in joy. Look at verse 25, the last part of verse 25, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Remember, not only is this church in Philippi experiencing external opposition and suffering, but they are also within the church experiencing tension. There are those who are preaching the gospel with wrong motives, trying to stir up trouble for Paul. There is something going on that we will explore more in the coming weeks. And so Paul, it's not not unimportant that he says, and I will continue with all of you. He's calling the church to unity. We'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Almost certainly that points to the friction, the division that currently exists. And so as Paul surveys the situation, he becomes convinced that God will spare his life at this time so that he can return to help the Philippians for the sake of their progress, that they would grow experience spiritual growth, progress. That's, that's what Paul just prayed for earlier in the opening of the letter, that they would grow, that their love for one another would abound more and more, that they would grow in discernment, that they would grow in fruitfulness. And now, 
for the sake of their joy in the faith, that they would share his joy, his delight in Jesus and in the advance of the gospel. And now Paul anticipates that through him once more being with them, they will grow, they will experience greater joy, and they will boast in Christ more and more. So what does Paul expect? He expects as he surveys what is before him, he expects that God will yet spare his life in this moment and he will return to serve God. Last question, and just briefly, what does Paul model? In the course of this letter, Paul will yet speak to the Philippians these words, that they are to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He'll say, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Listen to this. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you looking to the interests of others. Of course, whether Paul lives or dies, is not, it's not his choice. It's out of his hands. But, but here what Paul models for the Philippians, as he says, death would be gain. Death would be advantageous for me, but what's best for you is that I be able to return and help you progress in your faith. And so... I believe that was what God's going to do. Paul models this sacrificial, I'll do what is best for you, putting their interests ahead of his own. And for the purposes of Christ, he believes that God will return him so that they will progress in the faith and boast all the more in Christ. Mehdi Dabaj was an Iranian man he converted from Islam to Christianity. And in 1984, he was arrested by the government of Iran. The penalty for this crime of apostasy, of conversion, was death. And Mehdi spent 10 years in prison. When he finally came to trial, he reaffirmed his commitment to Jesus Christ. And here is part of his written statement of defense. He says, Jesus Christ is our Savior, and He is the Son of God. To know Him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in His beloved person and all His words and miracles recorded in the Gospel, and I have committed my life into His hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve Him, and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be a prisoner for the honor of his holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. Mehdi was sentenced to death, to be executed. Some of you may recall this story. Under intense international pressure, the government of Iran relented and they released him. But seven months later, his body was found under suspicious circumstances in a park in Tehran, he had paid the ultimate price for his faith in Jesus. But as he says in his defense, I am not only satisfied to be a prisoner for the honor of his holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him and death, a better opportunity to be with him. That's what Paul says here. Paul's single-minded affection for Christ, his devotion to Christ, his love for Christ shapes everything. It shapes how he lives and it shapes how he faces death. 
He is so heavenly minded that he was used by God to do so much earthly good. And, and that is God's desire for us. And I don't know about you, but I, but I hear Paul's story. I hear Medi's story. And, and I'm convicted. And I come to Jesus and I say, Jesus, I, I, I need to see more clearly the depth of your love for me. I, I need to see more fully the price you paid out of love for me. I'm reminded of the story of the sinful woman in Luke 7 when Jesus goes for dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house and the Pharisee's kind of checking out Jesus to see if he is indeed a prophet. And this woman, this sinful woman, stands at Jesus' feet and weeps on his feet and dries his feet with her hair and anoints his feet with costly perfume. And Simon concludes, well, clearly Jesus is not a prophet. Clearly, because then he would know who this is that touches him. And Jesus tells a story about two people who owed a debt. One was a relatively insignificant amount, and the other was a greater amount. And that person who was owed the debt forgave both. And Jesus asked Simon, who would love more? And Simon answers, the one who is forgiven more. Jesus says, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And so as we hear this story and perhaps experience conviction, maybe we're living for lesser things, maybe there are idolatrous things in our life, maybe we are not living with this single-minded devotion to Christ, this single-minded affection that shapes everything. The way, the way to proceed is not to, to beat ourselves up, it's not to try and pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps and go, okay, love Jesus more. No, it's to recognize the enormity of what Christ has done for you and for me. The good news is that Jesus, in his love for you, in his love for me, came and he went to the cross. And he suffered the penalty that you and that I deserve for all our sin, all our rebellion, all our idolatries. Everything was put upon Christ and He suffered for me. He suffered for you. So that the truth is, through faith in Him, you stand right now before the Father, holy, adopted, blameless. Your salvation is sure. Your salvation can be known because of Christ. And when we realize that, when we realize the depth and the magnitude of His grace and His love and all that is true of us through faith in Him, our love for Him will grow. We will begin to be transformed to be women and men who like Paul, who like Medi, say, can say and say with integrity, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live, I live for Christ. If I die, I get to be with Christ. That our lives would be centered upon. That our affections would be centered upon Christ and Christ alone and that lesser things would fall away. And that our lives would be so transformed for Jesus, for His glory, and for our joy.